Good afternoon, everyone. That was pretty good for a gloomy day. It is a little miserable out there, so I'm delighted to see you all here, warm and dry inside. I'm Paul Levengood, president of the Virginia Historical Society, and I'm pleased to welcome you to another installment in our Banner Lecture Series here in the beautiful Robbins Family Forum. And as always, it is my pleasure to thank the Richmond Times-Dispatch, whose support helps make these lectures possible. Uh, before today's program, let's uh, look down the road on the calendar a little bit. Our next banner lecture will take place on Halloween. Ooh, everyone in the crowd, ooh. Well, it's a suitably uh, uh, morbid topic, I guess, for All Hallows' Eve, and that will be uh, David O. Stewart, who's spoken here before, but this time he'll be speaking about something different. His topic is family of assassins, the Surratts of Maryland. Ooh. So uh, feel free to come dressed as your favorite Lincoln assassination character to the lecture. Um, it should be interesting. Anyhow, so that is Thursday, October 31st at noon. David Stewart. Our next gallery walk where you get to accompany a curator through the galleries will take place here on Wednesday, November 13th. Uh, that day, Bill Rasmussen at uh, midday will lead uh, a, a tour through a new version. It's really a new version of a tour we've done in the past, but it's got a great title, and Bill does it very well. The title is Good Art or Bad Art? What's the Difference? So uh, you get to, with an art historian's eye, understand why he may think this painting is really spectacular, and this one is kind of poor, but it's very, very interesting. November 13th, come here, Bill Rasmussen, do his gallery walk. Now, as always, you can find out more information about any of these lectures or gallery walks or register for our bus trips, which take us all around the state, um, our behind-the-scenes tours or anything else that we do here uh, at our uh, website, vahistorical.org, or at the museum shop when you leave. Now, please silence your cell phone if you have it with you so it does not interrupt our speaker today. Conceived during the Revolutionary War, built during the War of 1812, and looted during the Civil War, Virginia's executive mansion has endured fires, threats, riots, and hurricanes. Written to coincide with the mansion's bicentennial this year, in 2013, First House, Two Centuries with Virginia's First Families, by our speaker today, brings to life the private stories of the governors and their families who shaped the destiny of this unique home. The book traces triumph and tragedy through the turbulence of wars, fires, economic depressions, and renovations in a story that mirrors Virginia's progress from the 19th century into the 21st. Mary Miley Theobald is a historian and freelance writer specializing in history, travel, and business topics. She received her BA and MA from the College of William and Mary and taught American History and Museum Studies at Virginia Commonwealth University for 13 years. She's written nine books and 200 articles for a variety of magazines and newspapers, uh, most regularly for the Colonial Williamsburg Journal. And I uh, described her, her output as quite, um, what was the word I used upstairs, Mary? Diverse. It's, uh, she's written on lots of different topics. Um, 
Her newest book, which is a roaring 20s murder mystery called The Impersonator, made its debut three weeks ago, and it has already won the national competition for best first crime novel. Two of her other books, First House, we're talking about today, and Death by Petticoat, American History Myths Debunked, are available in our museum shop, and I'm sure she would be happy to sign copies for you after the lecture. So please join me in a warm VHS welcome for Mary Miley Theobald, who will speak to us today about her book, First House. Thank you very much, Paul. Um, and I apologize to start with that I have a very bad cold. <clears throat> I'm drugged, but I think I'm going to be fine. Please do not try to shake my hand. I don't want to spread any germs any more than I have to. So um, with that, uh, I've got my water and my Kleenex, and I'm ready. Um, let's see. I think that's this and this. OK. Uh, I, I find that people often ask authors how long it took them to write a book. and. Okay, it took me about four months to write the first draft of this, and it took about two years to do the research and the interviews and um, search out uh, enough uh, images to, to illustrate the book. Uh, for some people, this would be torture, but for me, um, it, it's great fun. It's a treasure hunt. I like nothing more than spending my days in um, museums and, and libraries um, and tracking down memoirs from uh, written by uh, people who had lived in the mansion as children or as wives of governors. Um, I was able to interview all 10 of the living former first ladies, um, dozens of their now grown children, and scores of um, uh, former employees um, who all had love stories about the olden days. And whenever I hit a roadblock, uh, there were always experts gracious enough to help me past it, whether it was librarians or archivists or editors and historians. This has really been a, a, a group effort. <clears throat> so what I really want to do today is read you the entire book out loud so you don't <laughs> miss a single riveting passage. But they won't let me do that. So um, instead, um, I'm going to give you an abbreviated history of the mansion, and then I'm going to introduce you to a few of the more interesting people uh, who live there. First of all, I'd like a quick question. How many of you have been to the mansion within the last 10 years? Okay, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Um, for those who are unfamiliar with the mansion, uh, it is a federal-style brick house with two floors of four rooms each originally. It was large by the standards of its day. Um, this floor plan is all that remains of Alexander Paris's drawings for the mansion. The plan shows, I think you can see, um, with, shows a library, um, parlor, dining room, and drawing room. That's the downstairs. Upstairs were four equal, equal rooms. Um, the house had a full basement that took advantage of the slope on uh, Shaco Hill, later called Capitol Hill. And there was a fine view of the James River from the mansion. Uh, the, the ships docked, uh, docked it below the rapids. There were plain brick fireplaces in every room and 13-foot ceilings that give the house a real spacious 
spacious feeling. Restrained dignity was the byword. Nothing too costly but classic. Now, in the fine Virginia tradition of fiscal conservatism, work on the house was completed in less than two years and came in under budget. The final costs were tabulated in March of 1813 and the total came to $18,871. Now, calculators show that that is about a quarter of a million dollars in today's um, money, which is less than the 20,000 that had been uh, uh, appropriated. And you might be thinking, wow, that's some house for $250,000. But remember that none of the expensive portions of the house were included. No kitchen. Of course, there was a separate kitchen next door. But there was no kitchen. There were no bathrooms. There was no plumbing. There was no heating. There was no air conditioning. There was no electrical wiring in the walls. Uh, so the real expense of the house didn't come till later. This faint pencil sketch is the earliest known image of the facade. It was drawn in 1826 before the front portico was added. Now, during the um, following two centuries, uh, the house suffered through one war, two fires, two threats of mob action, one instance of looting, four additions, and countless renovations, some of which were so um, major that the first family had to move out for some months while the work was done. In 1830, a front porch was added with columns, and in the 1840s, water was piped into the mansion, and a primitive toilet and shower bath were installed in the basement. Um, we think <clears throat> that the shower bath was probably used more by the men than the women, who probably preferred to continue bathing in the comfort of their bedchambers. And uh, there was a fireplace next to this uh, contraption if you wanted to have heated water, but there was quite a controversy in those years about whether what, what was healthier, having heat, warm water, cold water, tepid water, whatever. So you may not have taken a shower in warm water. Um, electricity and a speaking telegraph were added in the 1880s. The speaking telegraph connected the governor's office in the mansion with the Capitol. And that was the first telephone, of course. In 1906, a formal dining room was added as per the designs of architect Duncan Lee. That would be right here. He um, was 22 years old when he designed it, and it was his first job. In 1914, the second story was added above that, which doubled the living space of the family. and. Um, uh, and oh, and many of you will rec remember the most recent renovation, which was in 1999 during the Gilmore administration when every mechanical system was replaced, including heating, air conditioning, plumbing, fire suppression, security, whatever. And they lowered the basement floor by a couple feet. Uh, this is the, uh, that was where the floor en had ended and so got several feet in that um, in that particular space, which I'm sure uh, the staff appreciated. They no longer bumped their heads on the exposed pipes as they were down there. And people often um, are surprised at how much work goes on in the basement today. It's not only just the kitchen and the laundry. It, it's the security uh, offices, and there's several offices for staff, uh, Xerox room, um, you know, storage. So it's, it's a busy, it's, it's a large basement, and it's very busy. Um, Today, the mansion has 13,500 square feet. 
So at the dawn of the third century of service, the mansion has the honor of being the oldest occupied governor's house in all 50 states. It was designated a National Historic Landmark in 1988, <clears throat> and period, antiques, and art fill its public rooms. But it is not a museum. The chairs are for sitting, and the tables are for dining, and the floors and rugs get walked on every day by school groups, tourists, public officials, and other guests. They have re receptions, business meetings, formal dinners, parties, press releases, conferences take place daily. Even movies are occasionally filmed there, if you all saw the um, recent uh, Lincoln movie. <clears throat> and yet, in the midst of all this, um, it, it is still a home. One of the themes I found most interesting uh, as I was doing the research was the rise of the woman's place in the home. In 18th century America, uh, it was generally the husband in a well-to-do family who made all the decisions concerning household furnishings. Uh, he was the one who placed the order for furniture or fabric for draperies or tableware uh, and decided how everything would, would be arranged, and a dutiful wife agreed. So men like John Tyler Sr., not the president, but his father, um, he proposed the mansion and found a way to pay for it. So men like Governor Tyler um, proposed, designed, built, uh, paid for the mansion, and men handled its upkeep for the first few decades. Uh, money for repairs and maintenance came from the public purse, which strings were tightly held by uh, a general assembly, which is very reluctant to spend unless conditions were dire. So you might reasonably think that the short duration of a governor's term would mean that they would be discouraged from, from caring much about the house. Uh, but most of Virginia's governors and their wives cared very deeply about the mansion, and we know this because of the effort and their own money that they put into the mansion when the General Assembly didn't always come through. So as the 19th century progressed, and a man came to be defined more by his occupation and what he did outside the home than the home itself, the house fell more and more into the wife's sphere. Following the national trend, governor's wives took an increasingly active role in the decisions concerning the mansion, and by the early 20th century, they were actually uh, overseeing uh, the, the renovation projects themselves. So meet Betsy Montague. This is the wife of Governor Andrew Jackson Montague, uh, 1902 to 1906. And she and her husband were the first residents to really grasp the historic potential of the mansion. Um, the Montagues were not wealthy, but they purchased a few antiques for the mansion with their own money. And they took frequent trips to the White House to visit President Theodore Roosevelt. And the Montagues were able to witness firsthand all the improvements being made there as the old-fashioned Victorian furnishings were replaced with stylish colonial revival ones. And Betsy Montague felt that Virginians deserved a stylish uh, mansion also. But to redecorate was more than she could afford. So she prepared her own spending request for the notoriously tight-fisted finance committee. And she planned to deliver the appeal in person which is a very bold tactic no woman, or certainly no governor's wife, had ever contemplated before. Uh, a few days before the committee was to meet, um, fate intervened. During a reception for legislators, the finance committee chairman, 
who uh, was tactfully described by Mrs. Montague some years later as quite large, sat down on one of the mansion's old gilt chairs. I'll let her tell it. He crashed to the floor, reducing the chair to kindling wood, and was later caught trying to hide the splintered remnants in the palm decorations. <laughs> I like this picture. It did not, this is the Montague era. It did not happen in this room, but that is a spindly chair, and there are palm decorations. So I'm, I'm uh, partial to this. Actually, that would have occurred in the reception room, but behind, but. Um, After, oh, after, after this uh, incident, Mrs. Montague went to the Finance Committee and she said she was received with great sympathy by the chairman and the committee promptly voted her $7,500 and she redid the house in colonial revival style. Now meet the Montague children. That's Janet, Robert, and Gay from left to right. On February 22nd, 1903, in honor of Washington's birthday, the mansion was the scene of a lavish children's ball. All the guests came dressed as little Marthas or little Georges in knee breeches, uh, farthingales, wigs, you know, shoe buckles, whatever. Um, Gay Montague remembered the event 84 years later. I told my mother I was tired of chicken salad and I wanted plenty of ice cream and cake. So using borrowed ice cream freezers, mansion cooks and staff churned out, literally for days, churned out enough ice cream to feed a hundred hungry children. Rumors began to circulate that a gang of uninvited street urchins planned to steal the ice cream, which was being stored outside the mansion in February, where it was cold, because the refrigeration, they didn't have refrigeration. So the go governor put a guard on the um, ice cream but the guard was distracted watching through the window uh, at the children dancing the minuet by candlelight. And the bad boys crept around the mansion and managed to liberate all but one of the ice cream freezers. The expression on the children's faces at this party suggests to me that this photo was taken after the ice cream theft was discovered. This little scowling girl is Janet M Montague, and you don't see many smiles in that picture. So, um, uh, Gay Montague remembered that as the worst day of my life. <laughs> so, here's Gay on a happier occasion with her pony Bobo, and if you've been to the mansion, you will note that as you walk up the stairs, you are walking across her mounting block. Uh, she couldn't get on the horse herself, and uh, the horse was scared um, when, when uh, trustees with their, well, I'll get that later. Uh, the horse w w wasn't, she needed to get on herself, and so they put a mounting block there. It's been cut off in recent years, so it looks like a paving stone. You'll walk right across its piece of white marble. Now meet Elizabeth Swanson, wife of Governor Claude Swanson, who succeeded Montague. Mrs. Swanson took an active role in the mansion's dining room edition, working um, with that, that 1906 edition, um, uh, as well as the renovations of the Capitol next door. At the end of her husband's term, a grateful General Assembly adopted a joint resolution paying glowing tribute to the enthusiastic interest she has taken in this work 
for the time she has devoted to the same and for the artistic taste she has displayed. For a woman of her era to have taken on two such important projects at the same time really speaks to Elizabeth Swanson's remarkable um, ability and, and spirit. And when, oh, and here's the, here's the addition that she oversaw with Duncan Lee. You see how they made this telescop, doc, telescopic effect with the arches. And this is the only picture, by the way, that we know about that shows the fireplace at the end of the, of the long vista. Uh, the fire, uh, later fire would take that out. I'll get to that story in a moment. Lots of palm decorations, see there, I think. Um, when we found these painted plates in the Valentine, we realized that um, Elizabeth Swanson was also artistically talented herself. She painted those. Now meet Johnny Wise. He's the governor of, of Henry Wise, and Johnny loved playing soldiers so much that when the Civil War loomed, the 14-year-old tried to join the army. Um, his father uh, sent the butler, Jim, to fetch him home. He said, hurry him up, hunt him up, Jim, capture him, take away his arms, and march him home in front of you. Johnny would soon get his wish. As a cadet at VMI, he fought at the Battle of Newmarket, and he later became a Confederate officer. He ran for governor himself in 1880s and lost to General Fitzhugh Lee. Now meet Nanny Pierpont, Anna but always called Nanny, a feisty little seven-year-old redhead when she arrived at the governor's mansion in April 1865 with her father, Governor Francis Pierpont, who had been governing from Alexandria, the Virginia counties that did not secede and those occupied by federal troops. So when Richmond was evacuated, he hurried down with his wife and family to assume the governor's duties. Now, most white Virginians considered the new governor a scallywag, an insult hurled at anyone who co cooperated with the um, re Reconstruction governments. So considering the widespread hatred of their father, Nanny and her two brothers were confined to the fenced yard under the watchful eye of their nanny. So, of their nurse, I should say. I don't want to confuse you with the nanny's name. Um, but Nanny then made friends with the convicts from the state penitentiary. The practice of using convicts, uh, called trustees, at the mansion and the Capitol Hill had been uh, started in the 1840s, and people are surprised to know that it continues today. These men are model prisoners, um, brought each day to do the heavy housework, beating the rugs, scrubbing the floors, waxing the floors, washing the windows, and working in the yard. Um, they, today, they do not do indoor work, they only do outdoor work, but the governor's families came to know the trustees very well. Convict Jack was a particular favorite of Nanny's because he made little toys for her. And one day, Convict Jack decided to make a dash for freedom. The guard called him to halt, and Convict Jack didn't halt. So the guard raised his gun and called halt again, or he'd shoot, and Nanny stepped in front of the gun. And the guard was furious. He told her to move, and she moved, but she moved very slowly, <laughs> until by the time she was out of range, convict Jack was um, out of sight. So the guard was really angry, and he hauled Nanny into her father's office for discipline. Her father's office, actually, that's her father on the, I know you can't see it, but that's 
Governor Pierpont. This is his office, first building on the left. <clears throat> Nanny defended herself. Convict Jack is a good man. He made my lovely gutta percha ring with two silver hearts on it. I love him. Nothing more was ever heard of lovable convict Jack, but Nancy, Nanny does not mention in her memoirs whether or not she was punished, but I have a feeling that it didn't make any difference with this headstrong young lady. Now meet the Trinkle family. Just weeks before the house keys were to pass to Governor uh, Harry Byrd in January 1926, little Billy Trinkle, almost five, here in the center, was playing in the ballroom while his nurse was removing those toys from under the Christmas tree. Somebody handed the boy a sparkler. And you know what happens when a Christmas tree burns. It doesn't burn, it explodes, and the tree exploded. <clears throat> a guard on duty that day told the story, about 20 years after that. <clears throat> I ran into the mansion and saw the left side of the ballroom was a regular mass of flames. I sent out the alarm and did all I could. In the meanwhile, Lee Trinkle, that boy, um, Lee Trinkle uh, was the only member of the family upstairs. Everyone else got out, but he was trapped in the south back bedroom. Helen Trinkle got in a panic for the safety of her son. She dashed through the flames. They tried to hold her back, but they couldn't, and went up the stairs and made Lee jump from the back window into the arms of the butler, Clayton Setgray, who caught him. This is three stories in the back, mind you. Two stories in the front, but the back being on a hill. Um, and the butler caught him, and unbelievably, neither, neither was hurt. Um, but the firemen arrived at that point and th went to throw up their ladders. The ladders only went up two stories. And so the fire captain, G.D. Rust, climbed to the top of the ladder, of the second, the, the two stories up, and prepared to try to catch Mrs. Trinkle. Now you can see from that picture, I thought that was a 14-year-old in the picture when I first saw that, confused me no end. That's Mrs. Trinkle, the, she never weighed more than 100 pounds in her life. She was a tiny thing, which probably saved her life. She jumped into Captain Rust's arms, breaking both shoulders. He managed to <clears throat> hold on to her one ankle somehow, and so she was dangling two stories up. They threw another ladder next to that and climbed over and eased her down. The little boy, Billy, was found hiding under the smokehouse uh, 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 later, and his words, only words were, I did it. <laughs> so many years later, during the Holton administration, oh, wait a minute, I didn't give you the new picture. That is the same view as this one. See the two portraits and a window back there? There, that's the window, and that's where two portraits were, and uh, a burnt-out um, piano, by the way, which Governor Byrd said he couldn't live without a piano, so he sold the state limo. He said, I don't need a car, I'll drive my own car, uh, but we need a piano, and the piano's in the same one that's still in the mansion. So many years later, uh, in the Holton administration, Billy, uh, now grown, and his wife Virginia, and their son Tom visited the mansion. Uh, Billy died in 2002, so I didn't get to talk to him, but I talked to his wife, and she said, the only thing I wanted to see was the room where my mother-in-law jumped. 
I looked out that window and it was way, way, way down to the stone or cement driveway. I could hardly believe she had jumped out and the fireman had caught her. In our family, that fireman was a hero. Tom Trinkle remembered that the family teasingly called his grandmother Bloomer Girl because when she jumped, her dress went over her head and displayed her bloomers. Now meet Connie Darden, wife of Governor Colgate Darden, who took office just a few weeks after Pearl Harbor. Connie uh, is shown here setting an example with a victory garden, growing vegetables for the governor's table. The war years saw countless servicemen passing through Richmond on their way to an army base or a navy ship. But still, Connie Darden's story about finding a sailor under the bed is probably unique. One night, she, she recalled, <clears throat> our son Colgate came to our bedroom and announced there was a man under his bed. We did not believe him and told him to return to bed. He insisted, so I went to his room and discovered the feet of a loudly snoring man protruding from under the bed. I reported this to my husband and he called the Capitol Square police. A very inebriated young sailor had climbed the trellis outside the open bedroom window where repair work was being done. No doubt thought he was climbing the ladder of his ship and then got into the lower bunk. <laughs> After giving him some money, my husband had him put on a bus to return to his ship. Now meet the grandchildren of Governor Thomas Stanley, 1954 to 58, uh, who made his fortune in the furniture industry. The boys were pressed into service during the 1954 visit of England's Queen Mother, Queen Elizabeth, um, shown here. And after an elegant luncheon at the mansion, the boys were ushered in to present the Queen Mother with a set of miniature furniture that they'd made at the factory for her two young grandchildren, Prince Charles and Princess Anne. Afterwards, reporters asked the youngsters their opinion of the Queen Mother. Young Stanley Chatham, a candid lad of nine, as the reporter wrote, piped up. Gee, I think she's nice. She's real pretty. But there's only one thing. Somehow it seems she didn't speak English too good. <laughs> then no doubt hearing people laugh, he hastily amended his remarks so as not to seem impolite. But I guess she speaks English real good just to have been in this country such a short time. <laughs> There's been no shortage of entrepreneurs among the governor's children. During the Roaring Twenties, five-year-old Dick Bird, on his mother's lap here, charged his friends a nickel to ride the elevator up to his father's office. <laughs> Half a century later, Woody Holton, surely the mansion's most enterprising fundraiser, came up with a surefire moneymaker. He threw a few pennies in the fountain out front to make people think it was a wishing fountain and then scooped out the loot when no one was looking. <laughs> his parents caught him and made him contribute the money to charity. Undeterred, he waited until they were out of town before setting up as a tour guide, selling tickets to the family's private quarters on the second floor for 75 cents. <laughs> Only one tour actually took place before the Capitol Police confiscated his sign and shut him down. So when his parents came home, Woody received a lecture. This house belongs to all Virginians. They're taxpayers. No money can ever be charged for a tour. Oh, but these folks were from Texas, he replied. <laughs> Woody was given a paper route and a lemonade stand to keep him busy. So, governors may come and go, but the mansion's butlers stay forever, or so they seem to. 
Meet Winston Edmonds, the legendary butler who served 12 governors for 47 years, from Governor Lee in 1886 to Governor Pollard in the 1930s. He was married in the mansion, in the dining room, in 1893. And Tom Bannister, shown here with Mrs. Godwin, um, is uh, served about 40 years, starting as a chauffeur to Governor Byrd, and um, I'll find it. Yes, and then um, William Fleming held the position. Oh, he's on the right. Glasses. He held the position through six administrations, from Governor Harrison in the 60s to Governor Robb in the 80s. At that time, his stepson, Martin Towns, on the left, known to everyone as Tootie, took over the job and one he has held through eight administrations and counting. He told me that the day he's going to try to go for 10 and then leave. <laughs> the butler's job changes with every new governor, <clears throat> but it has always involved doing whatever is necessary to keep the house running smoothly and the governor running smoothly. Whether he's supervising part-time waiters, greeting guests at the door, uh, maintaining the equipment, or prying children out of the uh, dumbwaiter, the butler's days are never the same. Now, research isn't always productive. Those of you who are involved in history know that. Um, sometimes I spent hours or even days trying to nail down some point that would let me write one sentence that I was just determined to write. For example, when did the governors stop paying for a official entertainment out of their own pockets. I was shocked to learn that governors often complained about the cost of events and living expenses at the mansion, such a large house and so many uh, dinners and such that were required. Few of them were really wealthy. And for example, Governor and Mrs. Montague couldn't afford to give a formal dinner party for President Teddy Roosevelt when he came in 1905. So they decorated the house, as you can see, um, and this, by the way, is the only photo we know of that shows the house before the 1906 renovation when Dun Duncan Lee knocked out the back and added all You can see how it used to be with the, this is the hall we're in, two rooms on either side, but this back wall is not there. There were two rooms, this is the uh, other, the parlor and the dining room. This wall was taken out in 1906 and the, um, and now that's one big ballroom. Um, so what could they do? Well, this is how they solved it. Um, Mrs. Montague invited uh, people to come meet Mrs. Edith Roosevelt at the mansion, and she served, her cook served, made ham biscuits, and they served champagne, the only time as any alcoholic beverage in the house, the Montagues were teetotalers. <clears throat> and then the men were invited to a luncheon at the Masonic Temple. About 400 businessmen from Richmond came, uh, Richmond and outlying areas, attended. And of course, they would pay for their own lunch that way. And um, it, so it all worked out. But I wasn't able to determine the exact year or when the Commonwealth assumed responsibility for official entertainment. I know it wasn't the Montague, so it was sometime in the early 20th century, I presume. Library of Virginia archivists told me to start with that I would be unable to track this down, and um, I should have listened. <laughs> Nor was I able to discover when the Commonwealth began paying staff salaries. Before the Civil War, governors were responsible for providing their own staff, and all governors were slave owners, so they brought their own slaves or they hired 
uh, daily help when they got here. But after the Civil War, the army probably would have provided the military governor with, with staff. Um, but I believe that um, uh, butlers, cooks, laundresses, and maids were paid by the Commonwealth from about the 1870s onward. But the earliest documentation I could find was actually from 1910. So I, I wasn't, wasn't able to do much on that. OK, now meet the ghost. The tale told is of a beautiful young woman, aren't all ghosts beautiful young women, okay, who has been seen or heard, the rustling of her silk ball gown, by certain governor's families since the 1890s. The story varies, but generally she is supposed to have been killed in a carriage accident that slid on the ice on her way to the mansion to a ball or leaving the mansion from the ball, and she died and returns to haunt the house. I spent an entire day at the State Library searching for information, narrowing the time frame from 1813 when the house was built to 1894 when the first sighting of a strange woman in the upstairs bedroom occurs. But you can't search obituaries without a name, and you can't search newspapers without a date. And I could not go through 80 years of newspaper. So there was a very small range of local 19th century newspapers that has been scanned, meaning they're available for word search. And I did that. I tried every word I could think of, you know, but woman, lady, carriage, uh, buggy, died, death, um, anything. I came up with nothing. So what's the story? I think Butler Winston Edmonds made up the ghost in the 1930s when he began giving impromptu tours of the mansion long after Governor McKinney whom the butler said was the first man to see the ghost, but Governor McKinney was long dead by then. I concur with prison guard Samuel Cooper, who was in the mansion every day for about half a century supervising trustees, and he said, there just isn't any ghost. What people think is a ghost is really the vibrations, the creakings, and the settlings of an old house. However, Earlier this year, um, after I'd given a talk to the Historic Richmond Foundation, somebody came up to me and introduced himself as Wyndham Anderson, a volunteer docent at the Valentine Wickham House, which was also built, by the way, architect, same architect as the mansion, uh, uh, the Alexander Paris. And Mr. Um, Anderson said, I may know who the ghost is. Okay. He proceeded to tell me about a woman who had lived at the Wickham house who was killed in a carriage accident near the mansion. He didn't remember the details. So I followed up with Melissa Sleeth at the Valentine Museum who sent me three newspaper articles about the tragic death of Mrs. McClurg, wife of Dr. James McClurg and mother of Mrs. John Wickham. Uh, in June of 1815, it's in the range, on the hill directly behind the mansion, what we now call Governor's Street. Five people were in the carriage when it lost, slipped on the hill, and it rolled out of control uh, down the hill and smashed. Only Mrs. McClurg was killed. The other four were injured but not killed. She was not young. She was 54, but she was considered a great beauty in her youth. And so might this be the origin of the ghost story? I, th I think it's very likely. 200-year-old so houses are not uncommon, at least not in Virginia, which was the largest and first and most populous colony in British North America. 
But the governor's mansion is unique. No other historic house belongs to the people of Virginia, has been home to over two centuries of governors and their families, and serves as both a residence and a place of business. So I'll end my story with a story about Governor Pierpont. In 1866, he issued a permit allowing African Americans to hold a parade to celebrate one year of freedom. A group of white Richmonders paid him a visit and threatened to burn the mansion if he didn't rescind the permit. He said, this house is yours, not mine. It belongs to your state. Burn it if you think right. The men backed down and the parade went on. I want to leave you with Pierpont's words, not the part about burning down the mansion, the earlier part. This house is yours, not mine. If you haven't seen the mansion, or haven't seen it recently, volunteers give tours on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. And if you steer clear of, of Woody Holton, you won't have to pay. <laughs> Thank you. They told me I should ask if there are any questions. So, we'll see. Yes, very entertaining. Could Thank you. Tell you. Us a bit? We saw a pony and I guess Woody's uh, dog. Dog. Gina tell us Lola a little bit Bridget. about the uh, pets and farm animals that they may have had over Pet. the years. Yes. Um, mostly, well, in the earlier years, of course, the pets are tame squirrels and chickens and goats. And um, people would bring their cow. And a governor would bring a cow to graze on Capitol Square. So pets could be you know, birds or, or, or mice. Um, there seem to always be dogs and a lot of cats around. And um, the more, more recent governors tend to keep the cats in the kitchen addition next door because they, they climb up the um, extremely expensive draperies, uh, which is, can be a problem. Um, they, you know, a lot of the dogs cause caused some trouble. One, one ate the dinner right, the pork chops right out of the oven um, one day uh, during the Holton administration. So, but there, there have been, most governors have a pet and the current governor is no exception. I, and I should tell you there's a, an exhibit right now going on at the Library of Virginia about pets and uh, through Virginia history if you're interested in that. It's a lovely, a lovely small exhibit. A lot of us have understood that Thomas Jefferson designed this house. Right. I, I, haven't, I haven't heard that today. Yes, we, uh, that has been said. Um, that is not at all true. What I think happened is he did design a house. When he was, he was asked originally to design the Capitol and the governor's house and, you know, just because he was in France. And he did, I, I, don't, I have the, a picture of his drawing in the book. I don't have it for the screen, but he did draw it. It's nothing like the house that exists here. Of course, he was still alive in 1812 when they did this. Why they didn't ask him to design it, or maybe he, I don't know, maybe they did and he didn't want to. Why they didn't use his original drawings? It had an octagon in the room, you know, Jefferson had an octagon in the middle, and four rooms on either side. 
Um, he would not have liked this design. It's not, uh, it's not what he envisioned. So, um, no, no, he didn't design this, but he did design one. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah. You mentioned, I thought, two fires. I think you mentioned two fires. Yes. Could you tell us about the second yes, one? Yes, the other one was the um, fire that damaged the house during um, the um, Civil War, uh, the evacuation fire, it's called. And, ah, there it is. And you can see, this is, eight, this is right after the fire. You can see up here, and I mean, it looks pretty, it's pretty burnt up here. Um, the embers, the flames traveled as far as the mansion, and a, a fire plug had been installed in the 1840s for fire purposes. Not really, nobody really much cared about bringing water to the house at that point. They were concerned about fire. So there was a fire plug on Capitol Hill. And with that, um, the, you know, the people were able to um, get up on the roof with a bucket brigade and put out the fires. N nobody knows for sure who. It seems to have prob it's probably Union soldiers who put out the fire, but we don't know. And I think who probably subsequently looted the house too, but you know, one good deed, one bad. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, speaking of what uh, women have done in the White House, uh, I can remember my late former wife telling me that these, they'd been talking to Mrs. Holton, and Ms. Holton and the governor had decided that they were going to send their children to the Richmond Public Schools. Uh, I just wonder if you mentioned that in your book, but yes. I, I think, it, is that right? And I have a picture of it too, Taylor. Wonderful. I have a picture of Taylor going to school with her father. Wonderful. Um, yeah, it was... Uh, a significant event, and um, from that time on, um, Becky Becky Godwin was the last child to go to a private school, and from then on, the governors who've had school-age children, which is not all that common, have sent them to public schools. So. Okay.